This podcast discusses cases in which a crime may have occurred. It's important to advise that all parties mentioned or generally referred to in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty by law. Opinions expressed on this podcast don't necessarily reflect those of the podcast host, Murderish, or Cloud 10 Media. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please stop here and listen to the previous episodes in order so you get the full scope of this wild story. In previous episodes of Dirty Money Moves, we unfolded the story of Mary Carol McDonnell, a self-proclaimed heiress who got her hands on millions of dollars by lying and scheming. We dove into Mary Carol's childhood, her professional career in the TV business, some of her shady associates, and how she managed to get her hands on close to $50 million through elaborate scams and then disappear. In this episode of Dirty Money Moves, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Gina Mazzolini, the researcher and writer for Dirty Money Moves. Gina and I have been working together for a few years now because she also writes for my other podcast, Murderish. In our conversation, I explained what it was like working for Bank of California when we met an heiress who turned out to be a prolific con artist. Though we did include some of this information in previous episodes, my conversation with Gina is a much more detailed account of how everything went down at the bank from my perspective. Everything from hearing about Mary Carroll leading up to her loan closing, to meeting her when she brought us pies, to everything that happened after she took the money and disappeared. The conversation I had with Gina took place pretty early on, before we'd fully researched the story. So a lot of what I mentioned is just based on memory. Gina and I have had so much fun working together on this story. She's the first person I text when someone slides into my DMs with new information on this story, and vice versa when she uncovers something interesting in her research. Without further delay, please enjoy a little behind the scenes with Gina and me. Okay, so it was, I want to say like middle of 2017 to late 2017, when my colleague at Bank of California, where I worked at the time, had first kind of told me about this new lending opportunity that he had gotten. And I'll back up for a second just to kind of describe the environment at the bank. Like basically I was a relationship manager and all that means is um, I managed banking relationships, but mostly my job was to go out and source new business for the bank. Mainly I was looking for new business clients to uh, finance, you know, if they were going to buy a commercial building, let's say. Um, And not only would we finance their building, but we would bring that client onto the bank from whatever bank they were at. We would get all their deposits and ancillary, you know, ancillary, ancillary services. Mm -hmm. But mainly we were really trying to finance real estate. That's what we did. And I worked on a team of about five other people around my age, some younger, a couple of them were older, who did what I did. Uh, And we were a really tight team. And that's because we had all kind of like jumped from other banks together over to Bank of California, kind of at the same time. I mean, spaced apart a little bit, but our two bosses, uh, our team leader, and then uh, one above him was our executive vice president. They were really tight and had worked together for years. 
and they wanted to take an opportunity to go work at Bank of California and they needed to build out a team, a team who were in sales like us, who could go out and source new business, finance buildings, things like that. So that's exactly what they did. So they kind of pulled their resources and they brought me over along with like four or five other people. And we all worked in the downtown LA office on like the 20 something floor of Bank of California. And we were all really tight. I knew some of the people on the team already. A few of them were new to me, but we quickly kind of fell in together and we all felt kind of like a little family because we had kind of come to the bank together. And we would go to lunch together almost every day, you know, walk to a restaurant, we go get coffee, we had drinks, you know, outside of uh, work often. So we were, you know, friends. And we would always joke that because before we joined Bank of California, the bank had been in the news, but not for good reasons. I mean, there were, yeah, you could look it up. I mean, I hate to sound um, crass, but, but literally like hookers and cocaine, you know, like there, (laughs) I mean, like literally that was part of what was in the news. So, you know, and, and that's not that that's the whole bank's culture or anything like that, but there was somebody who was at the top level of management who was busted doing drugs and, 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 and had, you know, sex workers, um, in Vegas, I want to say. So that was in the news. And there were some other reasons the bank was in the news and they were really having a tough go at it as far as the media was concerned and, and things that were going on in the bank. So we all, we knew that, but we were just going to put our nose to the grind, do what we came there to do, build out a successful team and a successful unit. We were in the commercial or the business banking unit, commercial unit. Um, and so we were really close. So when we got to the bank, um, you know, it wasn't long after we all got there. I think that my colleague came to me and, you know, we were walking to lunch one day and I'm like, oh, what are you working on? And he's like, oh, I've got this new loan opportunity. It was referred to me by a very high profile attorney, you know, Barry Rothman uh, out of Beverly Hills. And my colleague had known Barry for quite some time. And essentially, I think that Barry used to refer him high end clients at the bank that he used to work for. And then, you know, when when my colleague came to Bank of California, Barry did the same. He says, hey, uh, he called my colleague. He says, I've got a very wealthy heiress um, who needs a short term loan of about $15 million. Um, she's also the CEO of a successful, you know, true crime television content, you know, production company here in L.A. And, and it was very intriguing And this, you know on its face, this is the perfect client. This is a, you know, legitimate business based in Los Angeles. That's where our bank was. And that's what, that was our territory. Um, I don't know what the gross annual revenues were of the company, but it, but it seemed to fit right in. And that loan size was great for us. We're like, yeah, that's, that's in our wheelhouse. Let's talk to her. So my colleague uh, did go out and meet with Barry and, you know, the heiress, uh, Mary Carol McDonald. And, um, you know, had several meetings kind of, you know, it was our job in sales to to vet the opportunities. We couldn't just, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks with credit. I mean, we really had to we would only present an opportunity, a lending opportunity to credit if we thought that it had the makings of a good deal. You know, the client was solid. The cash flow was there to support the the debt. Uh, they're going to bring, you know, some meaningful deposits to park at the bank along with the relationship. You know, all of that had to make sense. So we always have to 
vet the opportunities. And my, my colleague did that. But because of the stature of the client, you know, being that she was a very wealthy heiress and a successful CEO, and also the loan size was, was a decent size. It was $15 million. My colleague brought in our team lead and also our executive VP, who was the team leads boss in on the deal. And eventually they would also meet probably with Barry Rothman who referred the deal and the heiress, Mary Carol McDonald. Um, and so there were probably several meetings leading. I, I know there were several meetings and phone calls and, and conversations leading up to the time that the bank actually approved the loan. But so mid to late 2017 is when I first learned about it. And not only did my colleague mention it, you know, when we would go to lunch, like, hey, what have you got going on? Oh, I'm doing this loan for, and I thought it was intriguing because she was the CEO of a true crime TV right. know, production company. And I was- Had you heard of her? No, I had never heard of her. I had heard of some of the shows that her company put out there, you know, all these true crime shows. Yeah, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but, you know, you know all of them because with your research, yeah, bizarre murders, <laughs> uh, murder, uh, I don't know, mistress murders. I, I knew my murderer, murderous yeah. mistresses. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. There you go. So I was very intrigued when he said it was her and, you know, cause I was hosting uh, murderish, you know, my true crime podcast at the time. And I, I kind of just rattled off to him and I said, Oh, I wonder if she'd ever let me interview her for the show. And he's like, Oh my God, I bet she would. And he eventually actually went back to her during one of their meetings and mentioned me and she agreed. She's like, Oh yeah, have her come into the office. She can interview me. I'll show her around. And I was like, Oh, cool. I never did get to interview her, but you know, that's neither here nor there. I wish I I had had. given all we know today, like that would have been solid gold, but I didn't. So you know who Barry was like, did you recognize that name? I did not know who Barry was either. And it, which is surprising to me because I previous to bank of California, I worked at city national bank in Beverly Hills and Certainly, he he was probably a client there and had clients there. That uh, City National Bank is a very known bank for you know a lot of celebrities bank at at City National Bank. So I would imagine that you know there were some dealings that Barry Rothman had at City National. But I never had heard of him. Uh, my colleague told me about him, you know, and I just oh that's really cool. You've got a great referral source. You know, it sounds like he's referring you some great clients. But then, you know, as as we did in our our industry, you know, we would have weekly pipeline meetings, say, like on a Monday morning, my whole team and my team lead would get in there and up on the whiteboard, you know, there would be all the deals that we're working on, you know, and my colleague, of course, he had the Mary Carol McDonald deal up there and it was up there for, I want to say, several months because these things don't happen quickly. I mean, I would imagine it was probably at least three maybe to up to six months before, you know, from the time that he was referred the deal by Barry Rothman to the time that Bank of California closed on the loan, you know, for Mary Carol McDonald. So we would see the deal progress in our meeting. So I would always hear about it. We'd talk about it at lunch. And then in um, early 2018, I want to say like in March, which you probably have the exact date, but right around March, is when the deal was going to fund, meaning like the loan was going to fund and then Mary Carol would have access to that money. And um, right before the deal was going to fund, uh, my colleague comes to us, we're in a pipeline meeting and he says, hey, you guys, 
Mary Carol is going to bring us uh, some homemade pies. She wants to (laughs) (laughs) fucking pies, (laughs) right? She, she wants to just thank us for the stellar job that we're doing, you know, bringing her into the bank, getting her these funds and closing on the loan. She wants to celebrate and bring us these pies and see, this is a very unique situation and an odd situation because in the commercial unit that we were in and working not in a bank branch, we didn't work in a bank branch where you walk in and make your deposits and there's tellers there and all kinds of people right. coming in and out. We worked in an office unit on the 20 something floor. There was no cash being dealt there. There were no tellers. It was just a unit full of credit people underwriting loans. There were people like us, you know, relationship managers. There were operations people sending wires and things like that. And it was, you know, when you're in commercial banking, it's quite rare, at least for us um, and every bank that I've worked for in that capacity, it's very rare for the client to come to you, especially if you're on like the 20th something floor in downtown LA. It's really, we would go to our clients. So if there were any business meetings to talk, you know, to talk about a loan request or a relation, you know, just talking about the relationship, signing loan docs, we would always meet at the client's place of business. So it it was unique that she was going to come and fight, you know, fight her way through traffic to get to downtown LA and find parking and come all the way up to the 20th floor and bring us pies that certainly she didn't have to do that. So I thought, oh, cool. We're going to get to meet this lady. And I had been curious about her. I mean, when you hear about an heiress who's about to receive like $80 million, right, from her family trust. And by the way, so the heiress part, she was an heiress in quotes, because um, she was the heir to the McDonnell Douglas fortune. McDonnell Douglas being the large aerospace manufacturing company who was later acquired by Boeing. So she, and her last name was the same McDonnell, you know, and McDonnell Douglas was the aerospace company. So it made perfect sense to us. So She's an heiress. She's about to receive like $80 million of, which is her portion of the trust. Her siblings would also get their portion uh, here soon was the story. And she's the CEO of this highly successful, you know, true crime TV production company that put out a lot of shows that I've watched myself. So I I was curious, what does she look like? What's she like? I'm going to go shake her hand. So we're in a pipeline. Eat some of her pies. Eat some of her pies. Exactly. (laughs) Which we did, girl. So we were in the pipeline meeting and I remember her walking in and, and, you know, the, the room that we were in was like a conference room, but it's all glass, you know, it over, you can see the Hollywood sign out of one window and then the rest of the windows face toward the office space. You could see everybody walking around. So there's no privacy. It's all glass walls. So when Mary Carol walked in and we, we all saw her and my colleague was like, oh, there she is. Let me go out and greet her. And so he did. And I do remember coming out and I shook her hand and I probably said something like, oh, you know, he tells me that you're, you know, a true crime TV, you know, content producer. And I think that's so cool. You know, I have a true crime podcast. I probably had a quick conversation with her. I don't remember specifics on that. I remember she's holding the two pies in one hand. Uh, In her other hand, she had what looked to be a very expensive handbag. It was like a tan leather, camel colored, colored like leather. Um, she was wearing a crisp white cotton button up collared shirt 
with like the sleeves kind of cuffed midway up her arm. She was wearing like medium blue jeans that were kind of like loose fitting, but not not sagging, but like the style, like mom, you know, you know, mom jeans are super popular now. So she was wearing those type of jeans and they were also cuffed. So like cuffed, you know, a couple rolls up. So her ankle would be exposed. I know this sounds so creepy, but like, I don't know why, but I probably was so intrigued by her that, you know, and while my colleague was out greeting her, I had a chance to kind of look her up and down and like, yeah, this chick looks rich as fuck. Like, yeah, this tracks. She's the heiress. She is rich. She probably smelled rich, you know? Um, she had blonde do, hair. Go she ahead. looked the part then. She absolutely looked the part. She had blonde hair that was probably just past her shoulders. Uh, she's a white lady, looked to be in her late 50s, mid 60s, maybe. Um, and just very well put together, very polite, uh, very looked rich. And so eventually I went out and I, like I said, I shook her hand and everything. Well, she leaves. And we bring the pies into the conference room. We continue on with our with our pipeline meeting. And I'm telling you, girl, like I am not a pie person at all. But I took a bite of that pecan pie and it was the best fucking pie of my life. Like, <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like running out of the building with a bag of cash. Yeah, exactly. That, that's not what you picture, right? And we didn't know it at the time, but like she probably, she, it's probably like the Flintstones, like, you know, like when they're driving the car and it, and it's like that sound, you know, that's yes. probably this, I picture that's the sound her feet were making as she bolted to her little Porsche downstairs and got the hell out of Dodge. But, you know, we didn't know anything at the time. We were all excited that this loan was finally going to close. And there was, there were headaches along the way. This was not an easy transaction to close. You know, I, I saw it going down. I heard the conversations. I've talked to my colleagues, you know, in the aftermath and it was not an easy loan and it was by no means a perfect client. I mean, there were, there were some warts on the deal and, and we were, Oh, I say we, but like my, my colleagues, you know, who were working on this deal we're well aware of a few of those and those have to be disclosed to credit. You're not going to, you're going to lose all credibility as a salesperson. If you just try to pass it on to credit and hope they don't find something out, they're going to find it out. So, so those were disclosed upfront. Look, she, she's um, from what I remember, I mean, I remember walking to lunch one day and my colleague who was referred the deal and, and sort of at the forefront of bringing the deal to close he had said something. I asked him, like, how's the deal going? He goes, well, there's some issues like, you know, um, apparently some of her employees at Bellum didn't get paid on time. Um, but it's they knew that they knew that because I remember him saying, I don't know the exact words, but like there were or maybe he said, like, there's some issues with payroll or the there were issues with payroll and, and paychecks didn't go out as planned, something along those lines. I do not remember the exact words, um, but my colleague said, you know, but but according to Mary Carroll, Bellum uh, was the victim of bank fraud. And so it kind of messed up all their accounts and they were trying to get it all cleared up and that's, it screwed up all the paychecks. So some of the employees may not have gotten paid, but it's all being cleared up. This is according to Mary Carroll and what my colleague is telling me. Like it's all cleared up, it was bank fraud. 
not a big deal. We're working through it. It's all good. So there, that's one example of, you know, something the bank was well aware of. So we eat the pies, <laughs> she leaves, and um, the loan does eventually close very soon after she brought us those pies. And it was a, as I recall, it was a $15 million loan. It was a short-term loan. I want to say that the term was maybe a year to 18 months at most, right? Mm-hmm. And she was, so she was going to be paying that money back by that time. And the loan closes and how it was structured was that she wasn't funded the 15 million right when the loan closed. It was basically, she could call in and request an advance from the loan, which would be transferred into a bank account of hers. And that's exactly what she did. So after the loan was approved, um, she would call in and request uh, an advance. And she'd call in and say, you know, hey, I I need $2 million. Go ahead and transfer it over to my account. And our operations team would do that. But I would imagine, I mean, I can say with almost absolute certainty that those advances, anytime she requested an advance, it's not like any Tom, Dick or Harry who answers the phone in operations could go, oh, yeah, right away, Miss McDonald, Miss Aris, you know, we'll just transfer that $2 million. You have to get approvals from credit. Uh, from somebody probably pretty high up in credit. Those are large advances. So there's mm-hmm. protocol. So I would imagine she would call in for an advance of say a million, two million, whatever it was, and it would have to be approved. Then the money would be funded into her account. And as I recall it, within about a week to two weeks time, I, I mean, I don't remember, and I'm sure we can go back and look. She had drawn about $14.2 million of that money, I want to say, somewhere in that that figure. Uh, and so basically the loan was almost all the way exhausted. You know, it had been, she had requested advances within about a week to a week and a half, I want to say that all, almost all the money was in her account. Was so approved every time she asked for it. Had to be, had to be. There's nobody in operations that could just go, oh yeah, right away. Now maybe, and maybe it was even, you know, the, the, an, an advance of a million, $2 million, $3 million in one shot, that's a, that would trigger like a chain of custody, a chain of custody. And it would probably be like uh, somebody in operations would take the request, pass it on to their boss in operations. They would have to sign off on it, but it's probably above their limit as well. So it would have to go to somebody in credit, I would imagine, and they would ultimately have to sign off on it too. And then the money would be advanced. So I imagine that's what happened. Um, So the money had been all advanced. It was now in Mary Carroll's account, which at the time, I don't think that anybody thought it was weird because she was approved. The the money, she could fund it as that's, that's how it was supposed to work. But she did advance it pretty quickly. And I don't know if anybody thought, oh, we didn't expect her to advance it that fast, but she did and they let her and maybe that was fine. So I want to say that soon after she had advanced, you know, the 14-ish million dollars, somebody from the bank needed to contact her regarding something. I don't know what that was. And they tried to reach her. They called her. They couldn't reach her. Well, that's odd. And I think that that's what triggered somebody from the bank. And I want to say it was somebody in credit, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Calling. So as part of the loan, 
Mary Carroll had offered up like a $28 million investment account that was held at a different financial institution, not Bank of California. And that was to be held as collateral for the $15 million loan that she took out at Bank of California that was written into her loan agreement. So, so the bank had a pretty cushy fallback plan, right? So if she, for any reason, defaults on the loan, can't make the payments, doesn't make the payments, they've got this invest, investment account that's worth $28 million, which is more than the $15 million of the loan, right? That they could fall back on. Which they checked out, I'm sure. Yeah, well, you, well, <laughs> this is one of the biggest questions I have today. So after they couldn't get a hold, somebody from the bank could not get a hold of Mary Carroll, somebody, and I want to say it was somebody from credit, not sure, called that other institution to sort of like re-verify or discuss the $28 million investment account that was supposedly held as collateral for our loan. Well, lo and behold, they call and that investment account doesn't exist at that bank. And I want to say that the name that Barry and or Mary Carroll gave us as their contact person, their contact banker at that financial institution, they were also told like, this person does not work for us. We don't know who this person is. What? So it was just probably a huge holy shit moment for Bank of California because this is when they likely knew, fuck. Yeah. Hey, this investment account that was supposed to be held as collateral it doesn't exist. So of course they're thinking this is fraudulent, right? That this was all one big scam. And my biggest question, and I'm sure you're probably wondering, your question is how the hell did, did the bank advance 14 plus million dollars in loan proceeds without having verified that we do in fact have that investment account held as collateral, place some sort of lien on it or some sort of claim to it, however they do it in in banking, in lending, that we know for sure that we have the rights to that investment account should she default on our loan. So I don't know how you would, so I don't know how the, the loan proceeds, that all should have been taken care of before any loan proceeds were funded to Mary Carroll. And obviously that didn't happen because we hadn't confirmed that this investment account was real. And in fact, we did have a first lien on it should she default on the loan because when they called, they found out this investment account doesn't even exist. So I can't answer for the bank as to how that mishap happened. And I'm calling it a mishap because I don't know what else to call it. I don't know how something like that slips through the cracks, right? I know that they were presented with letters and official looking documents yes but to not ever actually call or speak and to a human being a, other than mary carroll or barry that's right and you're exactly right so of course the bank was absolutely presented with what looked to be an official document which was notarized um that clearly said that mary carroll has an investment account at XYZ Financial Institution. It's worth, you know, the balance on hand is $28 million. So the bank did have that backup documentation to show. And of course, they believed her that, that, that it, and maybe they even made some phone calls before the loan was closed to 
to do what they thought was verify that this account is real. But where the breakdown happened from there, meaning that before you actually fund the loan and let money leave the bank and go into the borrower's pockets, you clearly did not have any kind of rights to that account and hadn't verified it well enough because it doesn't exist. And that, and I am telling you that from what I saw and know, Bank of California is a sophisticated financial institution. It was worth a few billion in assets when I worked there, I believe. It's a publicly traded bank. It's not, there are not dumb people who work there. There are very smart people who work in sales, in operations, in credit. These are not, so it, you know, it's like you want to just go, oh my God, the silly bank, how the hell could they do such a rookie move? But it, it flabbergast, I'm flabbergasted because I know these people were very smart right. in credit. And, and Bank of California, we were not out there lending money to high-risk individuals and businesses. We were lending money to businesses who cash flowed and were profitable and could, you know, had you know, personal assets that, that helped the deal. And so, you know, I think that looking back on it, you know, I think there were a lot, a lot of warts, I'm going to call them on the deal. And I think that the way that the bank got past that, I think it's twofold. And this is just my theory. I think number one, Mary Carol was telling them and showing them with documentation, which we now no, was a lot, you know, a lot of it was fake, that she had a lot of money in deposits, both her business and personally. And once this loan closed as part of the deal, she was going to be bringing over a lot of those multi-millions in deposits over to the bank. So that was very juicy for the bank and any bank, any bank that lends money needs and wants to have solid deposits you know, at, at their institution because the bank takes those deposits and goes and loans out that money at a higher interest rate. And that is how they make money. One of the ways they make money. And I bet she knew that. Oh yeah. With all I'm, the different loans and things that she had done up to that point. Yeah. I'm sure that she used that as leverage. Like, look, this is going to be a really solid relationship for you. Not only am I going to do this $15 million loan, to be honest, I don't think the $15 million loan was, was so exciting for the bank. It was the deposits that she was going to bring over. That makes and, sense. Yeah. And at the time, I remember Bank of California was really hungry for deposits and banks go through those cycles. Like I've certainly worked at other commercial banks where it's like deposits, deposits, deposits. Come on, guys. You come on, team. Let's go out and bring out bring deposits because they need deposits to go and be able to lend money. And, and, and loans are very profitable for banks. So that was one that the, the bank wanted those deposits. So they were probably going to try to find a way and do their best to make this loan work. And I also think that, you know, her, you know, seemingly having $28 million in an investment account that she's willing to put up as collateral. It's like, okay, well, we've got this, you know, really solid fallback plan and and banks, you know, especially Bank of California, they weren't in the business of loaning money to individuals or businesses who they thought there was a good chance were going to default on the loan, thinking like, well, let's just roll the dice because we're going to have this cash collateral, you know, on the loan. No, the bank truly 
wants to lend money to people who are going to pay it back because that's how they make their money. They make interest on it. The longer that that loan is on the books and the borrower makes payments month after month, the bank is earning interest income. So they don't want people to default on their loans just because they have this collateral as backup. That That's not a reason to make a loan. But certainly that really helped the deal. And I don't know that the deal would have been able to be done without that cash collateral. So I think it was twofold. I think the bank saw the deposit opportunity, really wanted it. So they were highly motivated to do this loan. Um, and then, you know, the investment account being held as collateral was like, okay, we've got this backup. So I think we're good. That's my thought on that. But it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm still like, how do you not see the lawsuits that were it, already happening? Yes. How, yes. How do you just, I don't know. Yeah. It must've been really hungry for deposits. Like you said, to, to overlook all those red flags. Yeah, they, they were very hungry for deposits. I recall this. I've talked to okay. many of my colleagues since all this happened. And, and the bank was, re- we remember going to like sales rallies, you know, or maybe once a quarter, the bank would have a sales rally at the Orange County headquarters. And, and the CEO would get up there and say like deposits, 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 you guys, you know, like, and, and that there's nothing um bad about that it's you know banks go through cycles where they might be really heavy on deposits and like cool we can go out and loan money and make money great but there's times when they're in need of deposits and the bank was in a cycle where they wanted deposits so you know they made the loan she drew up the money they couldn't get a hold of her when they called which kind of freaked them out i'm sure they called that financial institution they realized holy shit that investment account does not exist which means we don't have that collateral on our loan. And Mary Carol's not calling us back. So we might be fucked to the tune of $14.2 million or whatever it was. So then, you know, the first payment due date came and went, no payment was made. So essentially it became clear pretty quick that Mary Carol was ghosting us. She had ghosted us. She took the money. We don't know where she was, what she was doing, but we could not get a hold of her. So. Corporate security was called in first. The FBI would come, I want to say several months later or weeks or months later, but corporate security were called in first. And immediately my three colleagues who had a hand in kind of like bringing Mary Carroll to the bank were interrogated. And I want to say for quite a length of time. And I specifically remember, and I was there, you know, all of us were just my colleagues and I were just sitting there watching it happen. Corporate security would go and bring them in one by one to this conference room, shut the door. We don't know what's going on in there, but I do remember my colleague walking out and I want his face was white and he just looked exhausted, freaked out, you know, and I, who knows what they asked him, but I would imagine it was kind of like one of the questions is there. I'm sure corporate security is trying to get as much information as they can to find, figure out what the hell's going on. But I would imagine they also wanted to know, did my colleagues have anything to do? Were they in on this scam? Are right. they getting any kind of kickback, you know, for bringing this, you know, alleged scam artist into the bank? And I can tell you, I, I would put, I don't put my kids on anything, but I would almost put my house on it that none of them had anything to do with this. Like I can, I would put it on so much. They were scammed 
just, they, they believed it just like credit believed it. Just like I believed it when I heard this, everybody just believed the story. They had no reason to believe. I mean, yes, there were some warts on the deal and I think some red flags, but like, it just is such a sensational story to, to realize that a lot of this stuff that she was saying was a lie to, to believe that. Right. So, so they were hoodwinked just like all of us were. And it was really, really unfortunate. Adulting comes with a lot of BS. And if you're like me, you drop at least 20 WTFs a day and you have a hard time containing your smart-ass mouth. This is precisely why Smartass and Sass, the subscription box, is perfect for me. Because it comes with snarky items that say everything I want to say so my sassy mouth doesn't have to. Smartass and Sass items are curated by a group of mouthy mofos who want you to get some good laughs in every day. Like their Make Today Your Bitch box calendar that has a page that says, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but I drink coffee, so fuck them. I felt seen when I saw that. The Smartass and Sass big box subscription might just be the perfect gift for the sass hole in your life, which might just be you. It's valued at $90 or more and comes with one Smartass and Sass design t-shirt and has between seven to nine unique items that'll make you laugh and put your inner smartass on display. Picture this, you're on the PTA at your child's school and there's a real gem of a mom in the group who always has to have things done her way. She's a know-it-all who you'd really like to unleash your inner smartass on, but you hold back for the sake of everyone else around you. Then your smartass and sass subscription box gets delivered and inside is a tote bag that says, don't be a salty bitch on it, along with cute pictures of french fries and salt shakers. The next day, you bring that tote bag to the PTA meeting so old one-upper Wanda can see it and know exactly what's been on your mind without having to say a word. Genius, right? Subscribe at smartassandsass.com and use code DIRTYMONEY for 15% off your first subscription. That's smartassandsass.com promo code DIRTYMONEY for 15% off. So after they had been interrogated probably numerous times, those three employees were put on leave from the bank while the bank continued to investigate what was going on. And this left, you know, this left me and my other colleagues with no bosses, no, no leadership. So one of my colleagues who did what was on our level and then our team leader and then our executive VP were all placed on leave. And so it was just the weirdest time in my career. So for about a month, we, we, we could not reach out to them. They couldn't reach. So I, that was part of the deal. Like you could, they, those colleagues who are put on leave cannot reach out. You can, we cannot speak with them while this is being investigated. And so while that was happening, I want to say before they were put on leave, but, but after the time that the bank realized, oh shit, we've been scammed. Um, we were all in some sort of meeting in one of the conference rooms. And I want to say I got a text message from one of my colleagues who was also in that meeting. Like, guess what? Barry fucking dropped dead. Barry's dead. He died in the dental chair. And, I, and I'm like, hold on. What? what? So all of us 
were just shocked. So when we got out of the meeting, we all huddled up and we're like, wait, what is going on? Essentially, we found out that Barry Rothman, the attorney who worked so closely with Mary Carroll and the bank, he, he almost acted like a broker. You know, he referred Mary Carroll into the bank. A lot of the documents that were needed leading up to the loan closing came from Barry Rothman. He provided them. Many of the conversations, if the bank had questions about the deal or about Mary Carroll's dealings or business, Barry Rothman would kind of be her mouthpiece and answer questions. It wasn't until toward the end, right before the loan funded, that Mary Carroll really got more heavily involved, I want to say. And she would start calling my colleagues and asking for status updates. You know, when is the loan going to close? This, this, and that. So for him to just be dead, it it dropped dead was just, we're already in shock over, we're reeling over the fact that we may have all just been scammed by this, you know, scam artist, this heiress. And then all of a sudden, Barry Rothman's dead and he died in the dental chair. Of course, my first, my first, my true crime brain, and I, <laughs> I'm not the only one, was like, okay, holy shit. Was he in on the scam? Did he know too much? Did she have him offed? And then right. did she flee, you know, this, the country with all these millions of dollars? I mean, I was just so confused. But what it turned out to be was, When my colleague was being interrogated by, I want to say it was corporate security, they used Barry's sudden death as sort of a way to shock my colleague into, I don't know, some sort of emotional state that maybe they would break him down and he would confess something or or reveal something that they wanted to hear or whatever. So as I recall it in talking to my colleague after it happened, he said he was being interrogated by or questioned or whatever it was, interviewed by corporate security. And they kind of dropped it on him like this. And I'm paraphrasing like, oh, and, you know, Barry Rothman's dead, right? And he's like, what? And they're like, yeah, he died during a dental procedure. And, the, and, and he was this was how he learned of Barry Rothman's death. And he said that it really First of all, he was so confused and shocked. He's like, what are you talking about? And they, so they broke the news to him. But he was also affected by it because he knew Barry Rothman professionally and sort of personally over the years. And Barry Rothman was referring clients to him and he probably liked the guy, you know, they probably had a text or called each other often and referred clients. So he was affected that way by it too. And maybe that was the time he walked out and his face was white. I don't really know. But um, that's how he found out. And then we all found out. So, but as you and I have this discovered in our research, yes, Barry Rothman may have gone to the dentist that day and had a procedure done, but he had gone home to his fiance and started to feel ill and had a heart attack. What yeah, was it? Yeah, uh, I believe he had a root canal earlier that day and he had a lot of dental procedures a lot of them and he was always put out for all of them like I, I don't under think was, full anesthesia yeah i don't think he was a big fan of pain so, yes um yeah he was put under the procedure was done there was nothing that went wrong in that area he was kept for like they monitored him for a certain amount of time afterwards and that was all documented his blood pressure and and all the things doctors keep track of to make sure that someone's doing fine 
and then they released him to his, um, I don't know if she was a fiance or more just like a life partner that he'd been with for a while. And then later that night, he started having some trouble breathing. And while they were at home, right? Uh huh. While they were okay. at home. And she took him to the hospital. And uh, after he had a seizure, I think is what she, what finally was like, oh my God, I got to get him to the hospital was the seizure. And yeah, then he died at the hospital. Um, he had some heart problems already. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing that I have found says his death was contributed uh, by the dental procedure. Like, right. You connected. and I have have reviewed the death certificate and, mm-hmm. and I, I also see that he, yeah, he died in the hospital. Um, he had some heart issues, some health problems leading up to that. But he also mm-hmm. had, I believe on his death certificate, he had type two diabetes as well. Yeah. And who knows if that played a factor. So, so he, Barry Rothman was not in the best health. I mean, he had some issues. He had some health issues. So it's just interesting that, you know, corporate security seemingly framed this as like a shocking sudden death in the dental chair, you know, according to my colleague, but really while his death was shocking, it really was like, it sounds like it didn't have much to do or anything with his dental procedure. Just he went home and that just happened to be the day that he met his end. And right. it was a culmination of his existing health issues from what heck it seems of, like. Heck of a coincidence. Heck of a coincidence. But it was a freaking shock to the system. We were all just like, what in the fuck is going on? This is crazy. So the interesting thing though, is that after Barry died, And we at the bank, you know, didn't know how he died or what circumstances. I mean, it was all a mystery. We had security guarded. We had guards guarding our office building outside every single entrance to that office space because the bank, I mean, I assume the bank wasn't sure, like, what is Mary Carroll capable of? Did she have anything to do with Barry's death? Which she didn't, you know, but we've, we've, we've vetted that out. But at the time, we didn't know. And we I don't know if the guards were armed or not. I don't really remember. But we did have guards outside of our office for, I want to say, at least a couple of weeks. And so just to add on to the eeriness of losing our colleagues, you know, them being put on paid leave. And we all saw the writing on the wall. We figured they probably would not be coming back as a result of them having something to do with bringing this lady into the bank. Right. So. And, you know, they bring in these other people from the bank to lead our team. And that was a whole shit show as well. Um, I remember one specific time we had a, you know, it was just everything was shocking. Barry drops dead under weird circumstances or so we thought. Then there's these armed, or, or I don't know if they're armed, but guards outside of our office door. And it's just like the weirdest vibe. And, and it was a big deal. The blowback at the bank was significant. I mean, when a bank of that size or really any size loses almost 14, I'm sorry, almost $15 million, it is a big deal. And this is a publicly traded bank, meaning that, you know, people can buy stock in Bank of California and there are investor meetings and the media, of course, you know, reported on this being that it's a a publicly traded bank and just kind of a big deal. So it did not look good for the bank. It was a real, oh shit, fuck up, like, you know, for the bank. It was a big deal. 
And the environment sucked. It sucked so bad. I remember just, it was so hard to concentrate on work. And I don't think any of us did during that time, to be honest, like we did what we had to do, but we were all just huddling up, like, what are we going to do? And so, you know, when I, when I told you earlier in our conversation that, you know, uh, there was some negative press about the bank before my colleagues and I kind of came over as a team and joined the bank. So we always joked, you know, as a team, like, you know, if shit hits the fan at this bank, because all this bullshit in the news or whatever, we're going to leave the same way we came in, right? We all came in as a team. We're going to blow out of here as a team. And we would, I mean, and we know that we would get hired at another, another institution together. I think that we were all had a good track record in our career and we came as a package deal and probably be, so we knew we'd be out of there. Like if this shit continues and the bank doesn't start cleaning this up, shit up, we're out. But that, you know, didn't happen. But then this whole thing with Mary Carol McDonald happened. And, you know, I I knew it in my gut that I was going to blow out of there. Like I was not the only reason I was at Bank of California, not that I had anything against the bank, but the only reason I was there was because of my team, my leadership and my, my colleagues. We were a team we worked really well as a team and we were going to leave as a team. You know, that was always the plan if shit hit the fan. So I no longer was going to be happy at that bank if if those three colleagues were going to be let go. And I knew that they right. would. Um, so I was already kind of like making plans to leave. And I want to say so the loan closed, I want to say in like February or March of 2018. It was February sometime. Yeah, And I blew out of there in like March or April at the latest, but I want to say March, I was out of there. And, and I've never looked back. Like I, I, that, (laughs) the craziest thing, Gina, is that, you know, Mary Carol, she doesn't know it, but she has had a very, she's been very impactful on my life and the trajectory of my life since that shit happened. Because I had always planned I was going to retire. I was going to do what I was doing forever. I was going to retire at some point. I was never going to be, I didn't have plans to get out of corporate, you know, commercial lending. That was going to be my career until I retired. And I have never worked a day since I left that bank in that environment. And, you know, as you know, I left there and I joined my husband in our um, landscape construction business and I started helping him manage that business. And I podcast full time since then. So my life has totally changed. And, you know, then the pandemic hit and it it was just, I know that Mary Carol has not, she's been the opposite of a blessing to just about everybody she's, you know, crossed paths with in her life. But for me, you know, she's been a blessing. I wish it never had happened. Trust me, if I could go, I, I wish that all these people could be made whole get their money back, that my colleagues would have never lost their job and had this stain on their reputations and, and, and all of that. But since it did happen, I was able to be home with my daughter while she was virtually learning for an entire school year. She was only in first grade, you know, and, and so I was able to be there. I don't know how my husband and I would have navigated that had I been commuting to downtown LA to work at the bank, you know, while she was at home or wherever virtually learning because kids couldn't go to school. And, you know, it's just meant so much to my life as far as, you know, the trajectory of my podcasting career, you know, uh, and now I'm, you know, producing, as you know, along with you, 
a brand new podcast that'll launch soon. And so it's been, it, it, it has been a blessing in my life that I never asked for that came in a very unconventional way. But, you know, she really has, Mary Carol has changed my life for the better. But I absolutely know that she has wrecked other people financially and emotionally, right? And reputationally because of what she's done to them and the money that she, she's gotten from them, taken from them. So the armed guards were there. Uh, and so there was this one situation before I left the bank, like I said, I was making plans to leave. And I think my co- other colleagues were like, I don't know, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not staying like the writings on the wall. And they did eventually terminate um, those three colleagues of ours. And that's, I was like, that's sealed the deal. I'm out. Like, that's it. And, um, but before that happened, I remember there was a guy who was really close to, you know, kind of like one or two down from the president of the bank, right? He was in executive management and, you know, our colleagues were on leave and we were all just reeling and it was very emotional. We, I, had a lot of empathy for my colleagues, although they've all recovered since then. They've got great jobs at other financial institutions and they're doing fine and they've moved on from this, right? And they're all highly ethical people and they are kick-ass bankers. I I know that for a fact. So they, they are fine. But when it all happened, it's like they're about to lose their jobs. This is gonna be a stain on their you know, professional reputation that they've worked so hard to secure. They, you know, and then now they've got this that right. they have to go and probably if they're going to interview at another bank, they've got to talk up maybe come up. Yeah. yeah. Talk about, well, you know, how'd all how'd you have a hand in bringing in this scam artist to the bank, you know? But the question I always had, one of the major questions was, you know, my three colleagues were in sales essentially. They're job was to go out and source business, bring it to the bank. But before they would bring it to the bank, you know, they would vet the deal to make sure this is a solid relationship to bring to the bank for X, Y, Z reason. Once they vetted it, then they pass it on to credit and go, okay, here credit. Now it's your turn to go and deep dive, crunch the numbers, collect, you know, three, we, by the time it went to credit, we would have already collected like three years of financial statements, three years of tax returns, personal financial statements, bank account statements. So we did a really good job of vetting. Then you pass it off to credit. And cre- it's credit's job to, to thoroughly vet a deal before signing off on it. And, and when a loan gets approved, especially a $15 million loan, that is a credit decision. And somebody very high up in credit, like likely the chief credit officer would have to sign off on that deal saying, yes, we're doing this $15 million loan for Mary Carol McDonald. And that did happen. So my question was, why are three people in sales? Their job was just, they, they didn't know, right? right? They vetted the deal and yeah, they, they disclosed some of the red flags or the warts on the deal up front. Credit was well aware it wasn't a perfect deal by any means, but it's sales job to go out and source the business. But credit, you know, is, I always say like, they're smarter than us, you know, in that regard. Like they are the numbers crunching people. They right. go out, run credit reports, run the LexisNexis really analyze the three years of tax returns and the three years of business financial statements, the interim financial statements, the personal financial statement, the bank statements, like that is their job. Yet nobody from credit 
was ever put on leave that I am aware of. I can almost say that with certainty. And nobody from credit was terminated from the bank for approving that deal or having any hand in saying, yes, we should do this deal and ultimately signing on that deal. That bothered me to my core. It still bothers me to my core to this day. And and it pissed me off that after my colleagues were put on leave and ultimately terminated, you know, there were assholes in the bank who worked in other departments and thought they were real smart. And, and there was one particular meeting we had in a boardroom within the bank. And this guy who was up in executive management, you know, just a couple down from the president of the bank, he was leading the meeting, the meeting. And it was me and my colleagues who were left behind, you know, hadn't been put on leave. And then it was like these other guys who were in this other department. And one of them opens his mouth and says some shit like, you know, oh, my God, anybody could see that nobody, you know, that they should have never brought that loan opportunity to the bank. Oh, my God. You know, she had this going on. She had that. I mean, come on. The writing was on the wall. And it's almost like how stupid are your colleagues for bringing this lady in to the bank? Yet it's so I. I don't remember what I said to him, but I snapped at him. I had had it and I knew I was going to blow out of there. So it wasn't, I wasn't concerned with being super professional. I had had it. I was super emotional. I was like pissed off at the time because they're trying to paint my colleagues like a bunch of dummies and they are not like they were not and are not. And also like give credit, give the credit team some, some accountability, right. In, in approving the loan, but you're over here talking shit about my sales colleagues bring it in. So I just, I almost, I think I looked at him and said, well, that's really easy for you to say. Like hindsight is 2020 and we're all a lot smarter when it's in the past. Right. And we could all easily say, oh, I would never bring that loan opportunity to the bank because I'm so smart, you know? So I kind of like shut him up and then the meeting starts and this guy, this in executive management starts kind of like, and I wish I remembered, I'll have to call on my colleagues to ask them kind of the gist of the conversation, but The gist of the conversation was he was kind of updating us as to what was going on, you know, this, this, and this. And in my mind, I could not have been rolling my eyes in the back of my fucking head any harder than I did. I'm surprised they ever came down to normalcy. (laughs) Like, I was like, this is all bullshit. The dude, I, I felt like, and I know this sounds super conspiracy theory, but I absolutely believed, and I still believe, that there was some sort of not cover up, but there was a reason why salespeople were being let go and taking the fall for this, but nobody in credit was taking the fall. And there are some theories on that that we'll probably get into in the podcast, but um, it, it, it bothered me and I knew something was up and I knew that at least half of what this dude was saying was bullshit. And mm-hmm. it, I was already emotional over this guy, you know, popping off about yeah. my colleagues. And then now this guy's feeding me bullshit. So I looked at him and I said, and I, and I challenged him a bit. I, I challenged him and, and I was professional. And I just said, but I said, it doesn't make sense to me that Mary Carol has to call in and request these transfers. Somebody from credit has to approve each and every transfer, not that, let alone they approved this $15 million loan, but they approved every single transfer And how could those be approved if we didn't have a collateral source, if that investment account wasn't, you know, we didn't have any kind of like lean on it or first rights to it? Why are they're approving these things? So why is nobody from credit being put on leave? And I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. 
You know, it's like, I'm not, I don't, I don't want That's these a legitimate questions, questions. but it's a, right. In my mind, it was, you know, and he looked at me and I, I don't remember his exact answer, but he fed me a line of bullshit and I knew it to be untrue. And it pissed me the fuck off. I, I'm getting pissed thinking about I it. Because <laughs> I just feel like I'm reliving the goddamn moment. It's like he, he, he lied straight to my face. And, and so then I went back at him a second time and he did not like that. And he sort of raised his voice, didn't yell, but raised his tone, raised his voice. And he snapped back at me because, and he just, and he used a curse word and I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was something like, because that's just the fucking way it is, or that that's just the way it goddamn is. Or I don't know what he said, but it's almost like, because that's just the way it is. All right, Jamie, like basically Jamie, know your role, shut the fuck yeah, up, quiet. just hear the story that I'm telling you and accept it and shut up. And I, I got that loud and clear. And so and then the meeting kept progressing and I piped in again over something. And I was so embarrassed because I don't cry at work, but I just burst in. I started crying because I was talking about my colleagues. And I remember looking at this guy in executive management and telling him, you know, they might never recover from this. They have families, they have children, they have brand new mortgages, they have built a solid reputation in this industry for many years for it all for now. And now they have to take the fall for going out and doing their job. They went out and sourced what they thought was a decent opportunity for the bank. Credit thought it was decent enough to approve it, but yet they're just going to take the fall for it. And everybody around here is going to talk shit about them. Like they're stupid. And I just was, and I, so I cried and I just remember being really emotional and it was embarrassing, but um, I left that meeting and that's when I was like, I am fucking out of here. I don't trust anybody here. That guy's a snake and a liar. This guy's an asshole. Nobody has my back. My team's gone. My leadership's never, you know, so I did. I blew, blew out of there probably within a month of, of Mary Carol taking that money. Before the loan was approved or after, my colleague had mentioned something. Oh, it was after the loan was approved. My colleague had mentioned, oh, and you know, like Mary Carol also has a brother who died under suspicious circumstances. And I remember like, okay, holy sh- my true crime brain is just going crazy. And I'm like, okay, well, here we go. She offed Barry Rothman because he knew much, you know, and he maybe he was in on the scam. And, and she offed her brother because she wanted more of their trust fund, right? Because she was going to get about 80 million. I still thought she was an heiress at this time, right? So I'm wow, like, I don't think I realized that. Yes. So, so still we, at this point, still at this point, she is an heiress. So we're just, we're just trying to connect that what is going on. And, and she offed her brother so that she could get, you know, more millions of dollars from that. She could get his portion of the trust money, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until later, like after I left the bank, months later, I decided to dig in and was like, this bitch is not an heiress. Like everything is pointing to her not being a damn heiress. <laughs> Fuck, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, not only did she take the money. Yeah. She, she's not an heiress. You know, spoiler alert. Said, no. Nothing she said was true. Nothing she said was true. Now, I don't think I had ever heard about anything about her little sister when I worked at the bank. That did I didn't even know how many siblings she had, nothing. I had just heard 
that she had a brother who died under suspicious circumstances. And of course, I'm thinking like, oh, my God, she killed him, too. But through your research, like, do we know that turned out not to be true? Like, no, it's not true. She died. She has a brother who died. Three had three brothers. Um, One of them died, but there's nothing suspicious about it at all. Yeah. He uh, had a heart attack, I believe. Okay. Natural causes. Yeah. Kind of like 2014. Right. So it, this, so it just, it just kind of gives you some insight as to like, what, what, like one bomb would be dropped and then another, Barry's dead. Oh my God. Oh my God. Her brother. Oh my God. She killed her brother. Like where, you know, there's just all this shit going on. It was just such a shit show. Um, and then you know, it wasn't until I want to say you were the one who alerted me so. that she had yeah. a sister because I didn't know how many siblings she had. And you alerted me that she had a little sister uh, who was her best friend in life. And she, you know, Mary Carol had apparently told numerous people uh, who for, for who knows how long that her little sister was kidnapped, held for ransom and murdered. So it was this sensational story, right? Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, through your research, you find out that is not the case. First of all, Mary mm-hmm. Carol's family is not even wealthy. I mean, they they had a business, a grocery business, but they it wasn't, did well for themselves, but nothing crazy. No, not not to the point where somebody would go. They are so wealthy. I'm going to kidnap one of their children, hold them for ransom and then murder them. No. And as it turns out, you know, her sister was six years old at the time. She's playing in the backyard and 11, oh, 11 at the time. Yeah. OK, she was 11. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and a 14 year old neighbor boy was also playing with her at the time. And somehow the neighbor boy had gotten access to a hunting knife and he stabbed her through the back. Mm-hmm. Right. And she the back went through her heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so her Blood little out. sister, you know, Mary Carol's little sister did die in a very shocking and horrific way that that no doubt had to be a pivotal moment for Mary Carol and, and, and just a, um, such a childhood trauma, you know, Mary Carol was for a sure. few years older than her sister, but yeah, they were best was, friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mary Carol was uh, 15. Right. So it's like, you know, to find out that Mary Carol spun that story, that, that, that childhood trauma tragedy of her sister dying in such a horrific way, she spun it and apparently told many people that it was actually that her little sister was kidnapped, held for ransom and murdered, which was probably the same worst, the same people she was telling that she was an heiress. Because if you're an heiress, then it makes sense that your little sister would be kidnapped right. and held for ransom. Right. So, it, but then through our research and, and connecting the dots after I spoke with somebody else uh, who I'm going to interview for this, um, he had recalled that I on Murderish, my other podcast, had a while back covered a case, uh, the Bobby Greenlease case. He was a little boy in St. Louis, Missouri, 1953. I want to say he was kidnapped, held for ransom and ultimately murdered. Now, 1953, when that happened, I believe Mary Carroll would have been about two years old ish when that happened, but it happened in her hometown. So no doubt that Bobby Greenlease case was infamous you know, especially mm-hmm. in the state of Missouri and in St. Louis. So no doubt everybody who grew up in the area grew up hearing about this infamous case. So 
this other guy that I was talking to sort of connected the dots and said, you know what? That Bobby Greenlee's story it was a kidnap for ransom, ultimately ended in the, the murder of a child, happened right in Mary Carroll's backyard. And she no doubt would have been hearing about that infamous case growing up. She likely took that story and, and took parts of it and made it her own and went and told people that but in reality, her sister was never right. kidnapped and held for ransom. Right. So, and not really even like murdered, right? She, she, she was killed by a neighbor boy, but, but, you know, admittedly, you know, her little sister, Holly, who was 11 at the time she died, had Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And through your research, you found out that the little boy who was 14 also had Down syndrome. He something. and Holly, he had something. something. Okay. Yes. Right. Um, they mentally, both went to like a, a school for mentally disabled. Gotcha. And they were were playing together um, in the backyard. And I don't know who was supposed to be supervising them and watching them. And I don't know how this boy got a hold of a hunting knife and was able to or why he stabbed Holly in the back. But it was a an extreme tragedy. And it happened. And and in fact, Mary Carroll's brother, Kenneth, I want to say, uh was the one who came home to find this this horrifying scene and rushed his little sister to the hospital, but, but, but she did die. She succumbed right. uh, to her wounds. So um, it's just, so it, I think it gives us insight, you know, into the psyche of Mary Carol McDonnell, um, that her yearning for grandiosity, she wanted the story to be bigger than it was, right? The story right. was just extremely tragic on its face, but she sensationalized it and sort of like, zhuzhed it up and now Mm -hmm. it's all of a sudden it's this story of oh yeah my sister was you know kidnapped and held for ransom which would make people think that her stature is much more than it really is right yeah and and maybe she could forget what actually happened to his friend make it into i mean i don't know if she started talking about that right then when she was 15 and like she sort of made that her reality yeah. Or if that's something she did later on. But she did start to use that fake story as a reason why she could not divulge her actual uh, asset information. Gotcha. I, I okay. believe one of her other lawyers wrote it in a letter at one point um, that said, you know, she's unable to divulge the McDonnell Douglas. Uh, trust information it's a safety measure that her father took after this murder for ransom thing happened so now everything's super confidential and no one can have that information so that all of his children are protected gotcha okay so see now we're kind of like you know maybe maybe her telling that story was twofold you know it could be she wants it to be bigger than it is because she wants, you know, she wants people to think that her family is highly wealthy, you know, very wealthy. But also she used that to keep people from prying into yes. too much into her being an heiress. Right. Yes. Like, oh, no, uh-huh. no. My father put this. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And so talking about it's Mary really Carol's. It, it's really so sad. sad. It's I mean, so that's sad. her best friend. It had such to a shape. traumatic thing for her. And yet, you know, X amount of dozens of years later, she's now using that death for financial gain. Yes. Right. Uh, that that's it's gross. 
you know, yeah. it's gross. And, and it, yeah, I don't know what else to say, but, you know, kind of speaking about Mary Carol's psyche. And of course I'm no, you know, psychologist or any kind of professional in that manner, but, you know, I always think back to Mary Carol. She knew that whole time I would imagine that she was scamming the bank out of $15 million, right? It was always oh, yeah. a con and she was about to close on the loan and she had the balls, the audacity to walk into our office, which was rare. Like people, customers did not, clients did not visit our office. I can't stress that enough. Um, to bring us homemade fucking pies. She like, what kind of sociopath? What kind of sociopath? I mean, I, again, I can't diagnose Mary Carol, but like what, what kind of sociopath you would think that if you knew you were about to con the bank out of $15 million and you were really close to getting that money, you would not want to show your face. You don't want to rock the boat. Like don't go to the bank. Don't bake the goddamn pies. Like I think she felt above that. Right. I think that that, so that her having the audacity to come in knowing she was about to rip us off for a huge amount of money and show her face and bring us fucking pies is like, it just jaw dropping for me. Now, my husband did bring up something interesting. He said, you know, maybe she did it because she was so desperate for that money that she was just, it was like the cherry on top. She thought that if there was a chance that the bank still might back out of the deal, this might seal the deal. Like, look, I'm such a wholesome, you know, client. I'm going to come bring you pies. I'm so gracious. I'm just this normal, you know, baker chick and I'm going to bring you these pies, you know, it basically like to seal the deal because she needed that money so badly and wanted it so badly that that so either or both could be true. But still, that takes balls to walk in and show your face when you're in about a week or so you're about to be a millionaire Uh, maybe it was an apology yeah and maybe so yes so i i don't know there's a small part of me i know you said that before to think that there i don't know that's just not all off but i'm sorry here's these pies yeah or a small gesture i think there's a part of me that believes somewhere in her for each of these loans or gifting programs, whatever it is. I think there was a small part of her that really believed she was going to pay people back. Okay. I'll just go, I'll get the next loan and I'll pay those people off. Right. And I'll, I'll get my head above water, but they just, Yeah, like almost like, you know, and then I'll start out at zero. Everybody will be fine. And then I can keep this this thing going. And they're going to be like, oh, see, Mary Carol did have good intentions. She paid us back, even though it was a little late. You know, whoops, my bad. You know, but but she just she couldn't keep doing it. It was there there was going to come a time when it was all going to fall. And unfortunately for Bank of California, that was her biggest get yet for the biggest scam of her uh, career. And, and maybe the last, I mean, who knows, you know, I don't know, but a person who thinks like that and does that for so many years, I don't know. I think that's kind of how they live their life, but you know, and then the whole Barry Rothman thing was just kind of shocking too, because I don't think I knew at the time, you know, Barry Rothman was involved in the deal. I certainly knew that I knew that he died and it was shocking. 
Um, but it wasn't until afterward that I really understood Barry Rothman's high profile nature, you know, in Los Angeles, like he, he has represented, you know, big stars, big celebrities. He, but I did not know that he also has ties to Michael Jackson. So Barry Rothman, right. He was one of the first attorneys to bring forth an alleged victim of Michael Jackson and accuse Michael Jackson of sexual misconduct with this minor. And it was just this whole messy thing. And, and then Barry Rothman finds himself in a lawsuit entanglement with Michael Jackson uh, for extortion. So Michael Jackson then is, is returning the favor to Barry Rothman and going, well, now you're trying to extort money out of me. And, And then the whole thing, you know, was dropped at some point, but it just, Barry Rothman yeah. was totally entangled with Michael Jackson and totally involved, you know, in this whole infamous, one of the biggest, you know, most noteworthy scandals it's in American history. Yeah, yeah, it's Michael Jackson, right? So polarizing because there's still people who absolutely love him. Oh, and yeah. Don't believe any of the allegations. And then you have the other camp of people that fully believe the allegations. and. There's like no middle ground either. No. And I would say it's kind of like Bill Cosby. You know, it's like people just cannot. Some people cannot accept like there's no way that that man is capable of that horrendous sexual misconduct. And there are many people who are like, oh, yeah, he's a predator, you know, so it's just it's shocking. You know what I wonder to this day is that if Barry hadn't died, what would this case look like today? Right. Because, you know, based on your extensive research and all that we know, I think it's highly likely that Barry was involved on this in the scam. And and he was right. Just based on all we know about his background of wrongdoings, financial Mm -hmm. misconduct in his past um, and everything. He was so closely involved in this transaction to get it to the finish line with Bank of California for Mary Carroll that you know, he provided documents and that document turned out to be false, falsified. So it's like, I can't help but to believe that he was involved. Do I know that for sure? No, I don't. But if I were to, again, put my house on it, I put my house on it, that Barry was probably involved in this scam. So if he would have survived, I would imagine corporate security and the FBI would have caught up with him pretty quickly, you know, spoken with him about it because he was in town, you know, he didn't, flee like Mary Carroll. So we going back to that real quick is, you know, after this whole thing happened, then I started, we started reading things. And now you and I can see court documents that basically state that Mary Carroll was in Dubai right? at some point after the Bank of California thing. So we surmise that she took the money and fled to Dubai. For what reason? I don't know. And is she still there? I know what she says is the reason. Oh, she what did she said, say is the reason? She said it was for a business deal. Okay. And that as soon as it was completed, she would return. Several times she said, I have not left. I am just here conducting business. Uh-huh. And I will return. And who knows? I mean, to this day, I don't know where she is. Um, I also wonder if, you know, through COVID, if if a lot of countries like Dubai would have flushed non-visa holders, permanent visa holders out of the country because of the pandemic. And maybe Mary Mary Carroll was forced out at that time. 
Maybe she left before that. Maybe she's still there. Yeah. I tried to research that, the whole COVID thing. Um, As far as I could find, they didn't force anyone to leave. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. But, you know, what would this case look like today if Barry, you know, would have been interviewed by corporate security, the FBI? Would he have divulged any interesting information? Would, if he was involved, would he have folded on Mary and just been like, all right, let me take a deal. That would have been interesting. Um, But he died and he, you know, it's just such the timing of his death for his sake. I mean, he was about to go through a shit show, I would imagine, you know. Yeah, because not only everything that you just said, I'm trying to find my, tried to have some papers out so I could see. Because I know, Right around the time that she got the money and before she left, they started two more LLCs and one of them was together. Okay. So, sorry, I was looking at my notes, but you said that after she got the money from Bank of California, you can see the formation of two LLCs where Barry Rothman was a member as well as Mary Carroll. Um, One. The other one, one is, okay. is Mary Carroll and her uh, husband. So that's interesting. So, of course, my brain is going toward. And of course, I have we have not verified this, but it's like, was that LLC formed together so that Mary Carroll could give Barry Rothman his cut of the money they got from Bank of California? That's I mean, that that's where thought. your brain goes. But we're going to try and dig into that and see, you know, yeah, here's what we can my find out there. From my- Handy dandy spreadsheet. Okay. Yeah. February 21st, they, they um, file for BTV productions. So hi, B's got to be very, very, right. Very TV, right? Yeah. Very TV. Gosh. And it's, it's the two of them listed on it. And then, so he dies on March 9th. Mm-hmm. On March 10th, she names herself the managing member. Okay. But I mean, he's dead. So of course, so somebody, somebody's got to, but. So it would be her. It would be her. And then on March 20th, 33 Media Incorporated comes out. And so, okay. And that's Mary Carol alone. With her husband. All right. We've got some more digging Uh to do into that whole situation because you, well, you know, and he's going to come up her, her third husband is going Mm -hmm. to come up in the podcast. And so we've got questions there, but um, you know, I've been consumed with this story for the last four years. I mean, borderline obsessed. I mean, I've talked to so many people about it and just, I, I had to know who this lady was, why she risked everything to be a con artist when and how in the hell was she able to pull off multiple large scale scams against very intelligent people she's not ripping off the elderly she's not ripping off just your average everyday person she allegedly seemingly whatever it you know she 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 scammed lawyers she scammed very sophisticated financial institutions and I'm, to date, what you and I have been able to add up, you know, that what we know of, she's been able to scam people out of like $30 million total, people yeah. and businesses. So, you know, that is impressive. 
<laughs> I mean, like, I, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's impressive. I mean, I, I, I am in awe of how she was able to pull this off. And you and I are going to do our damnedest to really connect the dots of how this complicated, it's a very complex uh, yes. process that she went through to be able to get this money out of people. And you and I are really going to try and break that down. But, you know, it's fascinating. She's female. Usually these white collar crimes and most crime, you know, are committed by men. So that's fascinating. She was allegedly an heiress. Turns out that's not true. You know, you've got the, you know, her Barry sister. Rothman, her sister was, was killed in a very shocking manner when she was a child. You've got Barry Rothman dropping dead in the middle of all the chaos. You've got the ties to Michael Jackson intertwined and Hollywood intertwined into this story. And where the fuck is Mary Carroll? Right. That's, that's my big thing now. Where I, is she even alive? Like, yeah, I mean, she's what? 70, 71 now. Yeah. So who knows? We're going to try to get to the bottom of it. I have not heard you cuss as much as you did <laughs> just now. I have no that's problem it. with it. It's okay. just funny because I've never heard it come out. Here. Well, that's the real me girl. Especially when I get worked up. I mean, okay, I, we need to go have drinks then. Because yes, you, you can relate. Think, yeah. Okay, good. I mean, I'm like, yeah. I, my whole thing, I tell people like my motto is, I don't really trust anybody who doesn't cuss. And like, if I meet somebody <laughs> for the first time, the second they drop an F-bomb, I'm like, we're cool. We're cool. You get me. I get you, you know? But yeah, I, I've always, I, I ease into it when I first meet someone because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Some people have a problem with it. If I'm hanging out with cops. It's on. Yeah. See, and I'm um, the opposite. Given my background in a corporate environment for 18 years doing commercial lending, you have to be very professional. So there was no, I mean, we would, we would go to lunch and cuss with our colleagues or, you know, having drinks afterward, but like with clients and just in the office in general, I was always professional, but like in my real life, it's how I express myself. I don't, you know, I just, I, I don't say it for no reason. It's like, right. dude, that moment That's is emphasis. I just, yeah, absolutely. My mom and I laugh about this all the time. She's like, it's my favorite word. <laughs> it's my favorite word. Yes, it is. You can use it in any situation. So many ways in LA traffic, you know, expressing yourself like just, yeah. So, okay, cool. This was awesome. Dirty Money Moves is a collaboration between Murderish and Cloud 10 Media. Executive producers are myself, Jamie Rice, and Sim Sarna. Sean Bannon did the audio mixing and editing for this episode. Josh Cook composed the music. Brian Stefanik created the podcast cover art, and the podcast is co-produced by Cloud10 Media. Follow us at Dirty Money Moves on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you like the show, please do us the biggest favor by reviewing the podcast and leaving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now because even four stars isn't good enough for the heiress. If you're into true crime, check out my other podcast, Murderish. If you have information about this story that you'd like to share, please visit Murderish.com and hit the contact button to send us an email. Also, if you or anyone you know have been scammed or were the victim of a white collar crime and you'd like help getting answers or justice, please contact us via Murderish.com. We're looking for cases to cover in season two of Dirty Money Moves. Thanks for listening and see you next week for a brand new episode.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.